welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 24. Today we're talking about Slava Zizek's Pervert's Guide uh, films, Pervert's Guide to the Cinema and Pervert's Guide to Ideology. And we're going to talk about uh, Room 237, a film about uh, theories about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And today, instead of doing a segment one and segment two, we're going to lump them together because um, we both feel that they're pretty uh, closely how should I put it, related in a certain way in terms of theme because they're both about interpretation and analysis in certain ways. And so we thought we'd discuss them together. Uh, Chris is not with us, but I am Eric Marshall. And I am Nick Schlegel. Yeah, Chris Gullen is away for, uh, for this episode. He'll be back next time. And so you just get me and Nick today. And let's start off with some uh, pickups. Uh, so what is up with you, Nick? Whoa. I would say more than... The last couple times we've done pickups where it's been sort of, you know, ad hoc answers. Oh, this, that, and the other. Definitely, I, I would say my latest news is that I'm writing full-time right now. You know, the spring term ended. And um, those of us in, in academia um, often find themselves sort of unemployed for a small portion of the year. And, um, you know, you just try and seven or eight weeks and you just do your you know you try and save up for it and stuff like that it's not like it's very easy to go get another job and then just leave it in a little over a month you know but um so we always know that this time is coming try to be as most productive as we can well in this case since i've got a book under contract that needs you know finishing that's what i've been doing i've been writing six days a week um really seven you know i, I get to that seventh day and i'm like you know i can't really just stop writing it just keeps coming and it's going really good and writing some good things and um you know exploring some stuff and i've, I've got a you know a, a decent chunk to add to this book there's a whole chapter that needs to be done completed that i haven't even started yet so i mean that's the um the bulk of what i need to do is in is in that un unwritten chapter but it's not a particularly long chapter it's probably gonna be between 25 and 30 pages you know so it's it's not going to be that difficult. The other things are just like, you know, whoa, like getting the images and and writing the captions and putting the index together and proofreading and acknowledging all the front matter. And, you know, there's just a lot that goes into it. Uh, and so your mind is constantly on on the project, you know. And then I sort of balance that with sort of meditational work around the house, you know, just keeping it up and going outside and, and uh, doing work around there and um, you know, that's, that's about the, all I can really say regarding pickups is my life has been just writing and that's good, Eric. It's, it's, yeah. it's nice to, even though I'm, I'm, you know, um, sort of actively trying to leave this profession, it's nice to, um, it's nice to, to leave this for posterity, you know, to have a book done out there you know like all that we all those years of hard work with the dissertation and so on and so forth and all the energies that were put into that will will sort of coalesce and uh you know it's it's done it's out there 
Yeah, that's great, man. That's very, very good news. It's good to hear. Um, you're like, that's all. That's all I have to say. It's like, what do you mean that's all? That's amazing. <laughs> it's really big, man. You know, I think as uh, as academics, like um, you know, summer and you know, and the other breaks are the times to write to get your publications done and stuff like that. And you know, I think every break and every summer uh, in, in the recent past, I've said, okay, this is the time I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, and and I always end up not doing it, right? <laughs> and um, and for me, this summer. Well, I mean that's always the excuse, right? Uh, but this summer, this summer actually is an exception. <laughs> this summer's different for both of us. I think um, I always get the impression maybe you're just uh, you know you're just a good con man and you're fooling me, but I always get the impression that you're much more organized than I am, which isn't hard to do because I'm very <laughs> disorganized. No, and uh, <laughs> well, you you you. You wear it well, I guess, but um, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very disorganized. Uh, you should see my desk right now. Um, but but I've been writing as well. But we're doing different types of writing, different types of work at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what a lot of people don't don't maybe don't understand is that we're both in contingent positions as teachers, as educators. So we don't we get paid per semester, we get appointed per semester, and it's you know it's not uh, a full time tenure track gig which um which would change things i think for us both uh, economically at the very least you know no um, it's just a, as you know it's sort of a it's we're just guns for hire every four months exactly exactly and that's true of of 80 percent of the workforce in um in academia right now we're not we're not the exceptions to that rule um we're, we're more the rule at this point and uh, so for summer, it can be, you know, I remember a couple summers ago, I waited tables for, for the summer. Um, this summer, I was able to save enough. I have my tutoring business, which, which helps and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's, that's what people don't understand. But you're doing, uh, you're doing an academic work. Um, uh, I'm writing more personal stuff. I've got a memoir that I am almost finished with. I'm in the final draft stage. And I've got a novel that I'm, that I'm going to be revising in July and August. And it's funny, Nick, I was, <laughs> I've been going through these and I decided to write the, a couple of months ago, I decided to write the fiction under a pen name and write the nonfiction under my real name, my, my passport name, as they call it. Uh-huh. And uh, as I'm editing this memoir, I'm thinking about Reverse flipping that. it. Yeah. <laughs> because the stuff, who cares about the novel, you know, it's just fiction, but the, uh, the memoir is very personal and there's some stuff in there that, I mean, I don't, I'm very nervous writing it. I'm going to, put it out i'm gonna do it anyway it's a, it's a memoir about graduate school mm-hmm. i think there's a significant uh portion of our audience that would be very interested in it actually mm-hmm. um it's uh it's about my time in graduate school kind of my journey to becoming a writer which is what i've always wanted wanted to do and i'm not committing to leaving the academic profession i do like teaching but i need to as you do i think we all need to to figure out what else we can do you know what is our plan b it, maybe it becomes a plan a you know things like that because we can't count on um uh, you know, tenure track positions. We can't count on anything, so we need to figure other stuff out. And I've always wanted to be a writer, and this is my journey t- through graduate school to becoming a writer, and how graduate school helped, but also very much hindered my progress as a writer. And it's it's good, but there's a lot of personal stuff in there, a lot of um, kind of embarrassing personal stuff. You know, it's very revealing. So um, if anybody wants to 
dirty tell-all of, of Eric Marshall. Yeah, and it's not it's not what you expect either. You know, it's not it's not all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, there's some sex, there's some drugs. There's not a lot of rock and roll, but um, you know, it's not. And you, I think, you with an academic or graduate school perspective, you always expect, oh, I did all this work, and then my advisor stole my research. That didn't happen to me, and I don't know very many people that that did happen to. It's not like that, but it's not like an expose of graduate school. It's a very personal personal thing. So, if anybody wants a sneak preview of it, I'm, I'm going to be searching for um, beta readers, people who might want to, um, you know, take a take a early look at it and give me some feedback. Um, you can email me at eric at ericmarshall.net, E-R-I-K at ericmarshall.net, um, and, you know, get on my list and, and you know. I am looking forward to reading it. <laughs> if, if, you, if you do have sort of like a... A pseudonym for me in there, or am I, or am I mentioned at all? Or <laughs> <laughs> I've changed some names, but not all. And uh, but I don't know if the, if you you're not really a big player in it, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> I, was, I was quietly supporting. <laughs> yeah, and that's why you're not in it. You're so quietly supporting, right? You know, you're just kind of there. You know, you'll be in the acknowledgments, of course. <laughs> but we had some good times. We sure did. We did have some good times, and you've been very actually helpful. Um, not just socially, but, you know, academically, you've read a lot of my stuff, uh, my academic work and, you know, helped me with my dissertation and all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. You can't make it through grad school without, you know, the math, you know, masters you can. Sure. I mean, masters is when you're doing a masters, it seems like great hard work. It's not until you actually take the plunge of the PhD where you find out the masters was just a very actually simple dress rehearsal to see whether (laughs) or not you could, you know, you had the stomach for it, uh, and um, you just can't make it through either of those without the uh, the support of friends. It's impossible. I really do think it's impossible. You'll quit. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I actually stopped my ma- I, I skipped the master's. I went straight from bachelor's to PhD. So I didn't have that staging ground and uh, kind of wish I had. Uh, I mean, if I had... If- yeah, you just had all the extra credits and work piled onto your, your, your PhD. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that's what I've been working on. I'm hoping to have that um, in uh, presentable... Um, in a presentable form by, by next week and then out by maybe uh, August or September. Uh, so that'll be good. I've just, yeah, I would say as uh, two addendums, one would be um, the, uh, the other thing that's challenging about the academic book is, of course, is the images, you know, trying to find, mm-hmm. you know, high-res high scans and, of course, getting the permissions from, from, from the people that are providing them for you. Um, you know, I'm using, you know, lobby cards and stills, publicity stills and posters and stuff like that. So it's not really, none of that's really copywritten. However, um, you know, whatever I didn't buy while I was in Madrid from the Ministry of Culture and the, and the Filmoteca have been supplemented to me by, by other sources in Madrid. So uh, it's, it's a lot of work getting all the images together, you know, and, and, and making sure that each chapter has supportive images so that when you're writing about the aesthetics of something... It certainly helps if people can see them. <laughs> yeah, especially with your with your field, because um, a lot of those films are not very well known. It'd be nice to see them. Exactly. Yeah. And the second addendum I was going to say is I actually wanted to add a honorable mention to our um, favorite endings of all time. You know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, two <laughs> movies came to me as I was going to bed, like a couple nights afterwards, and I'm like, oh, I got to mention those in the next pickups. Mm-hmm. But I forgot one. Uh, <laughs> and then like a couple of days later, I'm like, wait a minute. What was that other one? And I remembered it again. And then I forgot it again. And so, yeah. oh, man, it's getting sick old age. And 
But the one I did remember, and if the other one ever comes back to me, I'll mention it. But the one that I did remember and I wanted to add in the honorable mention would be, um, without doubt, the ending to Midnight in Paris. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. That's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that's pretty much all I'm going to say. You know, yeah, it's a good ending. Yeah. Is yeah. It, it's sort of like it's the, the perfect little button at the end of that film. It just puts a big smile on my face and... Um, you know, without I, this is one I can do spoiler free. It's just that, yeah. You know, it's one of my. I just love that ending. It, it, Woody Allen's sensibility as a director and writer are all over that scene. You know, like they're in all of his scenes, but that yeah. one in particular is sort of sum, summarizes him quite well. It's a, yeah, it's a really good ending for sure. You know, uh, <laughs> it's funny that we're talking so much about graduate school today, and we're talking in segment, well, in, in principal photography about Zizek, which I think is uh, <laughs> somebody you cannot avoid <laughs> in graduate school, right? Mm-hmm. You know, to an extent. Um, I don't know if you watch the through the credits of the of the Pervert's Guide to Ideology, but that might go on to my favorite endings. <laughs> it's it's really funny yeah window out of your out of what what it is you're currently watching yeah and says coming up next and it just pops up to the next yeah i was told to watch through the credits and that's why i clicked on back onto the um box so i could see it but it's 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 hilarious man but um i won't even give it away it's 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 yeah it's yeah it's it's one stupid little like outtakey kind of scene but it's really funny (laughs) so so those of you who watch it you should watch through the credits on netflix so uh i won't give it away you can go watch it on your own it won't it won't add to the discussion for you to know it let me tell you so it's stupid get up and watch it yeah, sounds good. All right, let's move into principal principal photography. Let's go. All right. <laughs> so here we are, principal photography, Zizek, and room two thirty seven. Uh, we should maybe give a quick overview, maybe of Slavoj Zizek, and maybe of psychoanalytic film theory, and maybe of cultural studies. Maybe that's too broad, but uh, for people who are like, what is all this? What is this Zizek thing? You know, um, and I'm not sure that I'm prepared to do that, but you know, I mean, I, actually, I am. So, um, you know, for those in the know, those who have gone through grad school and read read Zizek, they kind of know his shtick. But for those of you who are kind of more general listeners, um, Slavo Zizek is a Slovenian-born um, cultural theorist, and he's kind of a um, intellectual rock star. He is he's the one that that a lot of people go to for for uh, mostly film analysis, but cultural analysis in particular. Um, and he's made these two movies. Uh, doing uh, basically film analysis, film ideological criticism and things like that. And he's charismatic in his own ways. You know, when you watch the movie, you'll see he's this like, yeah, he's like this big bearded kind of guy with this thick accent. Um, But he's very energetic. Yeah, I went to see him once uh, back in, I believe it was 2000. It might have been, no, it was at U of M. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, 1999, I believe, actually, and it was uh, I went to see a talk he was giving at the. Um, it was in the. 
wasn't the business school. I can I can I can picture the building, mm-hmm. but I can't remember what department it was at the moment. But it was a, a fairly large lecture hall, and I got there uh, right around on time, maybe a little early, and it was already full, and they had overflow, and they had put a monitor on the out, uh, outside in the hall so we could watch on the monitor. And I could kind of, since I'm fairly tall, I could kind of peek in, you know, over people and see him from time to time. And I remember he was wrong, but I think he might have already had that one smaller movie out at that point. Zizek, just that one. Remember, remember that one? Uh, he might have. Yeah, he might have. Who knows? Yeah, well, he was... Um, yeah, I don't know either, but he was um, talking about The Mask, you know, the Jim Carrey movie, and there is something, some other stuff. I don't really remember the gist of it, because it was, you know, kind of difficult. But, yeah, even then, he was, you know, filling rooms, which is, you know, for an academic, that's pretty huge, you know. Um but you know, go ahead. And sometimes that that you know, it, and predictably, I've encountered a backlash against Zizek by academics who feel yeah. that he's sort of like uh, squandered his intellectual um, agility and acuity by becoming a, the the pop star. You know, and so uh, that's on interesting. On Facebook, I've seen people sort of like deride him. Mm. I don't know if it's out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. kind of I've noticed that, uh, you know that that um, I've just noticed that over the years, and there seems to be a correlation between his rising capital as an academic rock star and his sort of credibility with other intellectuals. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I mean, there are some valid criticisms to lay at his feet for sure, but um, on you know on academic or intellectual grounds. But you know, I found, and, and this is going to sound pretty pretty harsh maybe and cynical but i found that um anytime an academic tries to break into the public realm the public public intellectualism there's always a contingent of people who want to drag them back down um there's this very hermetic kind of uh kind of feel to academia and i think a lot of that is born out of jealousy uh i think a lot of it's you know kind of a protective instinct you know uh, in a certain way because yeah um it's always made me crazy because i've always myself strive to be some sort of public intellectual i think that 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 role in the society has has disappeared to a large extent extent you know either you're you know if you're intellectual you're academic and if you're academic you're inaccessible right um and and there's no there's no middle ground anymore you know um like i feel like there might have been in the say the 50s um, in the sixties, uh, maybe I'm romanticizing that period a little bit, but, uh, that's, that's always been my feeling. And I, I've always wondered, it's always puzzled me why academics can't write more accessibly or don't write more accessibly for the most part. Um, and not, and not to say Zizek's, Zizek's writing is incredibly inaccessible. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's, I think that's why we're talking about them today is because mm-hmm. they're, they're also dense because yeah. typically Zizek will start, I mean, when we start talking about the movies, you know, they, they've got this hook of placing him into the scenes of films and talking directly. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and sort of reinterpreting them on, on a theoretical level. But um, they always start off accessible whenever he's talking about something. He sort of like, he goes into lecture mode. And mm-hmm. for about the first minute of whatever he's talking about, you're like, you're with him. Yeah, and and then at some point, I think he, he you know, the audience, um, a, a mainstream audience without much of a background in cultural studies, will, will sort of, you know, fade off a little bit, and then uh-huh. even I fade off at some point because you know, and and all I'm saying is is that I've I've gone to graduate school and I have read a lot of Zizek and mm-hmm. do know the vocabulary 
that he's using. And even I sort of like, he'll lose me at many points during the film because I'll be like, oh, I, oh, great point, Slavoj. Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, nice connection. Wait a minute, what the fuck? What? <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. You know, and I, yeah, I'm the same way. Um, yeah, he's, I think part of his popularity is he's, he's coming from a materialist slash Marxist kind of point of view. I think that uh, hits a, a nerve with a lot of a good nerve with a lot of people. I think a lot of people like him because of that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, he'll get he you know most of the time when he goes on a segment, he'll go on. It's a pretty long analysis. And you're right. First first couple of minutes, you're like yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, cool. Uh huh. Uh huh. What? <laughs> so, and I'm well versed in Marxist you know ideological criticism and theory and and psychoanalytic theory. And I've read my Lacan, you know, and all that stuff. And, and even I'm like. But, but it's harder to listen to than it is to to read in some ways, although reading it's no picnic. But you're right. There's this weird um, kind of uh, dichotomy almost with him where he's extremely his, – his language is extremely dense in his writing, but he's he's still somehow occupying this almost public intellectual kind of thing, mostly through these movies, I think. Yeah, yeah I think you're start right. off by talking about the, the, the big bomb, the atomic bomb that many, many, many – Many, I mean, at the at SCMS and other conferences uh, in 2006, when Pervert's Guide to Cinema came out, many people listed it in their sort of top ten wish list type things. That oh my God, thank God somebody and and thankfully it was Zizek came out with a documentary that sort of intersects theory and film analysis. And and and, and interestingly, you know, like you said, through. Uh, a sort of neo-Freudian, sort of like Lacanian, new Lacanian, you know, framework. Um, so in other words, it brings psychoanalysis into it. It also brings Marxism into it, right? And so Freud and Marx were never exactly compatible theories. And yet he collapses them down into accessible, um, somewhat accessible uh, visual demonstrations through these films. And it came out, and I was, I, I was, you know, I was, it was, you know, enraptured by it. I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic!" We remember we had copies of it, and we were giving them to each other and watching, mm-hmm. and loving it. And there was just, um, and I went so far. In fact, we talked about this on a previous episode. I went so far as to show portions of it here and there to certain classes. Um, not so much intro to film, like Chris had talked about, which which I thought was a little bit much. But it's interesting, just two weeks ago, you'll find this is great, Eric, uh, a former student of mine needed a room uh, to screen his film that he just made, you know, a Wayne State student. Um, and so they needed a faculty member there, you know, to, to, to be representative, you know, because it was after hours on a Friday night and so on and so forth. So I said, I'd be happy to. And I went there. And a student of mine from 2007 or eight came up to me, Matt, Matt Kurtz, and he, he I hadn't seen him, it's obviously it's a long time ago, and that was for television criticism, and he said, what was the name of that thing that you showed us where the dude's in the boat talking about <laughs> yeah. and I was like, Zizek's Pervert's Guidance, he's like, yes, that's it, he's like, oh my god, I've been searching for that ever since, and I thought this is hilarious, because we talked about this as our next podcast, and I said, I, I'm going to have to bring this up, and I said, if you... I said, if you know, I said your timing is great, Matt, because you know he's got a new one out on Netflix, Pervert's Guide to Ideology, the the sequel, you know, in 3D, you know, with uh, with naked cheerleader, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and so, 
I saw on we became Facebook friends, and and then like about a week later, it's like you know Matthew was watching you know Pervert's Guide to Ideology. And I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> but I guess the point I was trying to make is that I I, I showed it in, in in TV Crit, not so much into it a film because you know they're already um, a little bewildered by some of the stuff you're doing, and I think Zizek is would be a rabbit hole of. <laughs> Uh, but I may retract that statement when we start to talk about the opening segment to Pervert's Guide to Ideology. I think that could be shown in any class where you're doing uh, any type of intro to film analysis. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that just any random viewer coming to his, his work is going to be a little baffled. Um, I imagine it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to say. And I, I've, showed, I've shown parts of it too. Uh, film classes, intro film classes as well, and they, they, yeah, they're they're pretty much lost for the most part. Um, what what saves Zizek's films in some ways from from the heavy jargon is the is the visual stuff. He just to give the view or the listeners a, a sense, he puts himself into scenes from the movies basically right so he, they recreate sets or do like green screen where he <clears throat> the the lecture part where he's talking about it he it looks like he's in on the set which is so the, the latest one that had me the, the <laughs> hardest was him him on the floating piece of wood in titanic was <laughs> <laughs> well then you absolutely have to watch the end of after the credits because it has to do with that titanic stuff um yeah. oh, and that yeah. titanic analysis was just spot on and actually i was like i was i was cheering for zizek because i am the only guy i know that champions that movie Mm. Um, for certain reasons, you know, um, I don't champion it for its love story or some of its sort of like incredulous dialogue. I, I champion it from different point of, different points of view, and uh, I, and so was so was Zizek, you know, uh, sort of like through an ideological framework, and uh, he was having a real good time. I, I thought that what an interesting concept. I'm sorry we're getting a little sidetracked here, but while I'm talking about, it, I should say that I thought it was absolutely fascinating that the you know the the reading that he was doing of that film i mean there's always that sort of like very basic almost primitive class you know association reading of the film right you know, the, tear, the tears of the titanic associated with the classes of the people and so on and so on you know all the way down to the rats you know <laughs> but but the way he was talking about how the sort of like aristocracy and upper classes use the lower classes to sort of heal themselves and make themselves feel better about things and then discard them, let them sink to the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was, you know, absolutely with not without a, a, a tremendous amount of merit, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, when, when he first started in the Titanic section, I was like, this is kind of obvious, you know, because it goes along with that same class. But then, then he goes into, like you said, the rest of it, where it's just kind of keeping around to feel better and then discarding, right, for whatever reason. So, yeah, I agree. Um, He's, well, because he talks about how the love affair fades and what we're left with is the sort of like um, the aftermath, after image of the events. And that's what he pulls yeah. from them and how that's uh, like the ultimate Hollywood film. That's <laughs> cool, man. In fact, I think I wrote down, he says that her ego is in distress and DiCaprio helps her to reconstitute her image. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good stuff for sure. Yeah, I was definitely entertained watching this latest one. Um, the the Purpose Guide to Cinema, I think it was pretty 
I mean, I'm not gonna say it's straightforward. I mean, they're they're kind of the it's just this is just an extension of that, I think, right? It's called the Pervert's Guide to Ideology, but it's really the same type of criticism, and it's always film. It's all film. You know, he talks about ideological in the previous film, which was all ideological as well. You know, I mean, yeah, it's just different names to do the same thing. Right, right, exactly, and he's probably just trying to capitalize, haha, on the brand of uh, the the Pervert's Guide, right? Same title, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, in this one, he talks about, okay, he talks about so much Clockwork Orange and uh, Taxi Driver and Last Temptation of Christ and Titanic and um, <clears throat> Full Metal Jacket. Uh, there's a bunch of Cabaret, other stuff. Cabaret, and yeah, and, and Jaws. Yeah. yeah, he starts off with yeah. Live. Yeah, mean, let's let's talk about that because I think that's a good opening for the movie. To be honest with you, I think it really it really grabs you. And I know that you have some history with that movie, sure. um, in terms of showing it to classes or just knowing it really well. Uh, but I I, yeah, I thought I it was a good it class, but just oh, okay. Really well. Okay, yeah, and you know he starts off with they live and talking about the glasses, you know, that show, right? You know, the guy, what's what's really going on? In case, in case people don't know, you know mm-hmm. yeah, very strong mid to late '80s uh, film from Carpenter towards the sort of end of his really productive era um, mm-hmm. that many people always thought was a pretty much a little unsung masterpiece. You've seen it, Eric, right? Yes, yes, okay. and. Um, yeah, I mean, I saw it as a 17 or 18 year old and loved it because it was, you know, it was Roddy Piper, and the fight sequences. I know. <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. The older you get, you know, even at that age, you you know it's very political. But I mean, at, yeah. as you get older, you get you start to see just how political it is. And and um, yeah, you're right. I mean, that opening where he talks about the the, the glasses just being truly the ideology glasses. You know, it's sort of like mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, blind dictates of consumerism and capitalism as your economic base, uh, what the glasses function as. And uh, there's, it, it would, it, you know, if you're going to, I guess that's earlier when I said I might retract what I was going to say, that would be, a, you know, when I do a segment on ideology, it would be wonderful to start the first five minutes of class by showing that, you know, because that would just prime the pump so perfectly. Yeah, I think yeah, I agree completely. And the, the idea of the glasses as a metaphor, because I, I, one of the challenges I have teaching and even just talking to people is, is when you do um, analysis or interpretation or criticism, a lot of times what you're, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to uncover ideology that was here, theretofore invisible, right? And you know, the idea behind ideolog- ideological criticism, in part, is that the dominant ideology in which we, we kind of live and breathe is invisible to us. Um, and, 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 you know, in our case, that's capitalism and, and that's why a lot of this film is all about, you know, kind of the dictates of capitalism and, and, and things like that. Um, but it's so hard to, to make that leap for a lot of people to say, look, there are, you know, you, you live by a set, we all live by a set of values and, um, you know, and thoughts and, and, and things like that, mores or whatever that are, that we look at as natural, which are not natural. And there are ways to see these through culture, through language and through other things. And the glasses and they live is a great metaphor for that. You know, there's this, like, that's what ideology, ideological criticism does. It, it, it tries to show you like kind of what's behind all of that. Okay. Yeah. And that, that I, I agree with you. That might be a good way to, um, you know, to introduce the, that concept, you know, because, um, 
a lot of times, and we'll get to this when we talk about Room 237 probably, but a lot of times when you start doing criticism of any sort, any kind of analysis, especially with, with novices, uh, you, you always get that, aren't you overanalyzing this? I mean, really, it's just a movie. Right, and and you get that all you get that all the time, of course, and that's that's a good way to, to kind of explain it, you know, and we'll talk, of course, more about that when we get to room two thirty seven. I think, I, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> we haven't talked about it yet, but yeah, um, yeah, uh, that's the mantra of that movie. Jeez, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, some of the some of the things he brings up in this, he talks about. Oh gosh, I don't even know where to go. He ta- uh some of the interesting things to me, like the whole towards the end of the movie, he talks about the big other, you know, this this thing to which or for which we maintain appearances as a capital O other is Lacanian concept. Um and you know, he goes on talking doing this Lacanian kind of um read of the big other. You know, we don't we don't do things for an authority, but for an imagined authority for right. somebody, you know, as you know, even if it's um you know, our peers or people that we think are better than us. And then he, he kind of crushes it and says, but there is no big other. We are alone, <laughs> you know? And, and, and he was, a de- yeah, yeah. So he does, he, he does what you think might be a predictable kind of analysis. And then he kind of sideswipes it a little bit, you know? And he's like, we're alone. There is no big other, but it's all imaginary constructs. And I think that's great. And he talks about that when he's talking about Titanic actually a little bit, but also last temptation of Christ. And um, he's, he talks a lot about like Stalin, uh, Stalinist, uh, the Stalinist period and stuff like that. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a fascinating concept. It and then really is. He, mm-hmm. you know, he marries that big other, I think, with a lot of his, another branch of the ideological, which is the military. Yeah. Uh, um, and right before we get into that big other portion of the documentary, we spend a, a good while on like um, Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Uh, talking about the sort of the obscenity and the rituals that are drilled into the cadets. Um, and then what, what should happen when we start paying too much attention to the strict rigidity of it all. So he's like, he talks about how if it's just nothing but the superego, our, our constant moral watchdog, you know, and guilt engine speaking to us, um, then we have the, the situation where you know there's there's the 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 breakdown of reality the the killing of you know the drill sergeant and then the suicide mm-hmm. because yeah um you know the the he talks about the fine line between um that is not simply just he's like he's talking about you know this is my rifle this is my gun or all the other right. they do when they're marching he's like that that sort of like childishness is what keeps the super ego in check with all the military authoritarian um ideology essentially right so i thought that was fascinating too and a great place to go when he started talking about the big other um i know when what's the other thing that's the other term he, he oh i forgot he's like when with something of the distance iron ironical distance or what does he call it uh, the it's a oh, I term i think it's yeah and I don't, i'm not remembering it there is a, it has to do with distance yeah, yeah. yeah once uh. that distance collapses and then it's nothing but the superego no ego or id keeping it in check then, then you have like the scenes you see in towards the end of the first half of of Full Metal Jacket. But of course, Full Metal Jacket. I'm not sure if you're aware. This was all about sort of like the Native Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even start, man. Don't even start. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dining. 
It's foreshadowing. <laughs> Nick is foreshadowing uh, the, for those of you who haven't seen Room Two Thirty Seven. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah, some of the other things he says. He talks about Taxi Driver and he equates it to the Oslo Killer, um, who uh, has this long manifesto that he wrote in, in reaction to global capital, and he's he says that Travis Brickle is doing the kind of the same thing in a way. It's it's you know this, and those are I think pretty traditional, not traditional, but pretty straightforward uh, readings of those. Um, what about that, but, like, that that bird's eye view of him on Travis's bed? Yeah. Staring up at <laughs> yeah, I know. Constantly yeah. fanning his feet too. It's like I, yeah. I had a hard time looking at his face. <laughs> keep his feet still. They're like so constantly. Fun. He's like wiggling his toes the whole time. I'm like <laughs> looking at his face, but then there's something in my peripheral vision. I'm like, would you keep your feet still so I can pay attention to what you're saying? That's hilarious. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, some of the some of the non-film things. Well, I don't know if he talks about uh, the band Rammstein. Oh, um, man, that's yeah, and this I noticed a move he makes in a couple different places in that part of the film because he talks about Rammstein and and that's the German band who um you know they're popular probably in the probably early two thousands I guess um yeah that du hast du du hast du hast mich or whatever like that um I liked them back in the day but anyway, he talks about them taking on um elements of nazism in their uh in their uh stage presence you know they have the the dark clothes and the boots and all that stuff mm-hmm. but they don't but their um their lyrics are not about nazism and they don't seem to to endorse nazism and in his his um kind of thesis there is that they're undermining nazism by appropriating its images he, they're undermining it from within uh to they're emptying it of any kind of meaning in a certain way um and that's when he, he segues into the titanic talking about the rich kind of appropriating the vitality of the poor and you know so that they can then discard them um and later on he talks about religion and he talks about um, Osama bin Laden and uh, and this idea that like he says if you're an instrument of God like Osama bin Laden uh, um, claimed to be he says and he says that narrow moral terms are are ridiculous like there's no there's no reason to even talk about morality if you're an instrument of God because everything you do will be automatically moral or it'll be, you know, because there's no, there's no sense of even thinking about it. Right. And I thought that was an interesting point. And then he relates that to, um, to, to Stalinism, like the communism in, in, in the Stalin era and Stalin's, um, you know, Stalinist communism basically. And, and so he's, it's not just capitalism that gets it, you know, he, he goes on the other side too, but then he, that's when he starts talking about this big other. Right. And, and then he segues into the last temptation of Christ where he's, talks about you know at the end of that film those of you i don't know if, I'm, I'm assuming a portion of our audience has, has seen last temptation of christ but you know it's you know he dies on the cross but you know there's no real resurrection or anything like that so what he says about that is that what dies on the cross is the big other the idea that we need to keep up appearances for any other um kind of authority and uh, and i love the, the his quote or it, where he says that the only way to be an atheist is to go through christianity christianity the best atheists come through christianity and that seems to be an undercurrent of a lot of what he's doing is like the best way to undermine something is to go through it you know and he does it the rammstein and nazism and with christianity and atheism um 
which which is is kind of interesting in a way. He says the best atheists are Christians, which is just kind of perverse. Uh, you know, it is called the Pervert's Guide. It's a very perverse uh, kind of kind of point of view, but um, but it's it's persuasive as well in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, and I think that's. I mean, that is sort of the the ultimate gift of both films is that. I think to academics as well as you know students as well as just the mainstream public who who may not be um, in higher ed in any way you know uh, that he's he's um, he's pairing up he's doing the, he's doing what he does the best and what film theory when it's when it's really humming does the best which is he's using it as an as a lens to amplify our own conditions. Um, he's saying that these stories are, are mediated by our own cultural narrative experiences. They're written by us, for us, and certainly that you know everything that goes into breaking up our ideological state apparatuses, as it will, you know, our ideological reasons mm-hmm. are all embedded I- into these artifacts. Just like an arrowhead, you know, will tell us a lot about the civilization that made it. And right. so he's going he goes into these films and then teases out of them in very clever ways sometimes um ways that expose our own condition um, and uh he does it really well across multiple eras and in, more in this film across more international cinema you know yeah because pervert's guide was really really focusing on hollywood and that's great because there's lots there but um sort of like the the you know war-weary continent of Europe sure had a lot of interesting stuff to say as well after, you know, the 40s and 50s, or during, I should say, you know, post-World War II era. And he goes into a lot of that. Um, and I found, you know, Perfect's Guide to Ideology just almost like nothing had happened in between that and the first film from 2006. It was just a continuation, and uh, I was just as sort of like spellbound, but just as easily lost sometimes, too. Yeah. He would just go like two or three steps too far into something, and I'd be like, you lost me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I re- rewatch it, maybe he'll catch me. But for the most part, um, a, a real treat. Again, yeah. a real treat. I, I agree. And it's a, if you're at all interested in the film on first viewing, I think it demands a second viewing because I, I, I probably grasped maybe – 40 or 50 percent of what he's talking about yeah. you know uh maybe 60 if i'm being nice to myself you know there's a lot there that on a second viewing i'll catch that i didn't catch right um and you know i don't think any very few people i should say will catch all of it and if you do like it at all i think it's the way to go but i, I think you know to sum up on these movies i think that you and i largely agree that the films are overall persuasive you know he does a good job of analysis from a certain point of view but a point of view that's kind of helpful useful almost necessary and convincing uh with a, with maybe a few exceptions or a few you know kind of where he goes too far right more or less right? So, yeah like i remember him you know getting on the boat in jaws and talking about the shark is brody's it was so unconvincing that i i i didn't mm-hmm. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are. He talks about the shark. I think he's using that as a contrast. He's saying the shark could be anything. He says it could be like, you know, it could be, um, 
it's so empty that it could be anything for anybody, depending on the interpretation, I think, is part of his analysis there. I thought he was going to go for the sort of obvious the you know, uh, thing, which was the shark was a threat to capitalism. It was, yeah. it was simply just going to shut off the economy of this of the and so that the power figures like Vaughn, the, the mayor and the, you know, the conspire against the the enforcers of the town, right? The uh, the law enforcement mm-hmm. um, to sort of have them bend to their will to the ideological apparatus. But he didn't go that way at all. He said something about. I'm like, that's that's always what Zizek does too. Is like when you think he's going to say something. Oh, Jaws, sure, obviously the the shark is a threat to the capitalist structure of the town of Amity Island, which needs those summer dollars, you know. And and he didn't talk about that at all. He went completely someplace else with it. And I was like, mm-hmm. what? You know, it's like, yeah. so I don't remember what he said, but I remember going, huh? Like, yeah, so there are definitely points of the film where we would, we would say, well, and there's, there, are better, there are better analyses of the film, or you're missing something, or he's going too far, right? But for the most part, I think we, we, we kind of agree that it's, 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 some, it's pretty useful and thought-provoking and, and you know, kind of connected to the world. And he's basically showing us how film kind of plays out Sometimes undermines, but mostly plays out particular f- capitalist fantasies for the most part, right? And then and, and things like that, right? So, yeah. So from there, from 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 these movies, moving to Room Two Thirty Seven, mm-hmm. we have another movie in Room Two Thirty Seven, which is it's it's a film that takes I think it's five or six different um, people. I can't remember. I think it's five um, who have basically obsessed over the movie the shining this movie came out in 2013 uh, room 237 did and it's uh, it's these um kind of theories and analyses of, of room 237 from different points of view um from these people who are clearly uh well i want to say obsessive that's the word i want to use but i could say uh, I that's you know? <laughs> and um that's yeah okay and so Watching Room 237, I had a very different feeling uh, than I did watching Zizek. You know, with Room 237, I found myself almost immediately going, what, really? <laughs> you know, and you know, especially the guy who um, who says that it's all about the Holocaust, that the, the Shenning's about the Holocaust. Now, overall, I found the movie kind of charming in a certain way. It's, it was like, you know, it's, it's, in some ways, it celebrates a certain love of cinema and of movies. And I love that. It's got a good kind of spirit to it. It doesn't criticize these people. It doesn't try to lambaste them, but it also doesn't necessarily support them. Um, and it's all told... You never see the theorists, you know, the people with the theories, I should say. You never... I think so too. I think so too. The entire film is done in voiceover from the point of view with the voiceover of these people who have these interpretations of the film and you never see them. There's never like a talking head thing. And then the images are probably 30 or 40% from the shining. And then the rest is from other found footage or other movies. They talk a lot about Kubrick's, a lot of, a lot of other Kubrick films and stuff like that. And then the, the soundtrack's a little, I, I think a little overwrought, you know, in some places where, you're, you know, but yeah, whatever. Right. Yeah. 
too heavy handed. And I think the imagery is too heavy handed in places, but overall it's like, it's kind of, it's nice to see people who are really interested in film and want to like really pick this thing apart, you know? And I, and I, I totally sympathize with them, but for the most part, it's just, it just doesn't like, none of it seems to hold very little of it seems to hold together at all. I kept um, to sit down with those five or six people and show them Errol Morris is the umbrella man. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Say, yeah. All right, you guys, watch this, you know, yeah. and then because I mean, the moral of the Umbrella Man is like, you know, hey, whatever your theory might be about stuff, you can never, you know, like, you know, let's just forget about it. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, good, good God, Eric. Um, <laughs> you keep talking because I have, I have so much to say about this film that I, I don't know where to begin, and yet. Okay. I'll probably, all, all I'm going to say is kind of the same thing over and over. So yeah, well I'll keep going then, and then I'll have you respond because I have I have you know. Um, so one guy is convinced that The Shining is about the Holocaust, and he keeps re- obsessing over this number 42. The number 42 is is in these various places in the film, and um, and he's going around you know, finding this number, which has some significance to the uh, Holocaust. And he talks about some of the imagery as being like uh, Holocaust imagery and his theories that Kubrick like wanted to write a film about the Holocaust, but couldn't. And the only way he could do it was by kind of sub- sublimating it in this, in this film. Another person had the theory that, uh, and this is a theory that a lot of people know that Kubrick had a part in faking the um, Apollo mission, footage the footage of the moon landing a lot of people think that's fake and a lot of people think kubrick has something to do with it and this other guy's um theory is that the shining is his admission he admits through encoded ways mm-hmm. that he did help fake the moon footage and and it's all in there in the shining if you just watch it right right, right? Uh, there's another person who thinks that there the it's it's about mythology and there's a minotaur and like there's a there's a poster in the background in one of the scenes it's a it's a skiing poster but she's convinces the minotaur and she talks a lot about mythology and things like that there's another person that thinks it's all about the native americans and and that and that almost makes sense because they actually mentioned native americans in there but like you know the whole calumet i think it's flour whatever that corn cornmeal i don't know what it, whatever it is uh, she finds Native American imagery everywhere, and it's all about the the Native Americans and and things like that. Another person has a theory that a lot of it's about time, which I actually agree with. I think the film is about time in a lot of ways, and I I could I could get behind that analysis a little bit, but it, that also hooks in then again to the, the Native Americans and stuff like that. So you get all these disparate things, but the way they support their argument or their theories is by this really nitpicky kind of searching for symbols like the one that i found one of the things i found the least credulous is that the word i'm looking that's not the word i'm looking for um credible i guess um yeah it's um the minotaur one you know i'm looking at it i'm looking at it, I'm like i do not see a minotaur here no, <laughs> you know no. um or what about the raging hard on when they when when they too oh yeah yeah oh yeah there's the, you know explain that explain that oh well you know the guy which one is he i lose track of them is that ryan or is that i don't even one? know this is the guy <laughs> that thinks that um the movie's about i think it's it's the one the guy that talked about time i think he says that when the director of the hotel 
and uh, Jack Nicholson meet for the first time and shake hands, that the the inbox of his paper tray becomes uh, <laughs> yes. a symbol for a, a, a hard-on that he has. Uh, and he never explains what the hard-on means. <laughs> right. Uh, I think this is the same guy that's talking about, you know, the the fact that Jack Nicholson's reading a play Playgirl, you know, in the lobby. Yeah. Uh, and and I mean, this is just, you know, as our dear friend Robert Burgoyne always says, is just sort of like symbol hunting and man, the manufacturing of meaning when it's not there. <laughs> it's just simply not yeah. there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. But here's the question, and maybe maybe it, I don't know if it's too early to go into this or not, but what's the difference? between room 237 and and Zizek. You know, and that's that's what I want to get cuz I I hear that go ahead, yeah, go ahead. First component. Uh, say say that again, say that again. <laughs> sanity. Oh, sanity, okay. Yes, I think these people um, <laughs> are all somewhat deluded by the film and that they've obsessed upon it. The, the film itself even towards the end talks about forest through the trees. The, yeah. that, the, the one guy, who, the guy who has that sort of like compulsive nervous laughter after everything he says, he'll be like, yeah. oh, it's 4.30. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like there's this laughter that uh, is, is the man who has um, his son in the background who's uh, asking for attention every now and then. Um, you know, he's saying like he's, he's, he's becoming, you know, Jack Torrance by, by, and his life is becoming this. And it's like, well, then that should be a signal. That should be a cue that that like this is just a film based upon a novel made by a filmmaker. It was a commodity, a product that was put out, you know, shot in England uh, and, and on location. It was made. It was thrown out. It made money. End the story. Live your yeah. life enough. You know, right. it's ridiculous. These these conspiracy theories for this film. The difference is, um, you know, that for me, there's a difference between honest intellectual textual analysis. Right, which is to just basically, like you said earlier, um, put your ideology ideology glasses on um, and look at the 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 powers that shaped and formed the text that you're looking at, and and see those articulations of those powers, and to sort of just like indulge in fantasies and try and find things that are obsessive and compulsive in your life and project them onto the the text themselves. No, oh, that's that's interesting. The projection factor is is kind of interesting, you know. Well, I mean, yeah, each one of these people is obsessed with these topics, and they've projected it onto the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like with with um, you know intellectual criticism, a la Zizek, you do have a sense that it's hooked into larger, uh, you know, maybe societal, cultural, economic factors that that went that go into the making of the film um whereas with this it's like i have this idea and look at all the stuff i found and i think the idea is with something like room 237 it's kubrick had a secret um mission a secret message that he wanted to put out there because he's a genius and a mastermind and all this stuff and he wanted to there's an intentionality there, you know, that he intentionally, except one guy does talk about this kind of death of the author sort of thing with cultural studies towards the end. But for the most part, there's this idea that Kubrick is intentionally trying to send a message and he's coding it in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Whereas with something like psychoanalytic film criticism and things like that, you're saying, oh, no, there are unconscious drives that may have nothing at all to do with the, the author's 
the author's intent, the you know the director's actual life may or may not. It, it's other forces, and, and there are ways to read it. And there's a reason for the popularity of certain films based on that stuff as well. And there are certainly analyses of The Shining that do that and do that convincingly. Sure. Um, but yeah, these I think are more you know this kind of like you said conspiracy theory. You know, there's this this conspiracy that. I don't know if it's a conspiracy of it's one person, but you know that that Kubrick chose the patterns in the rug to mirror the you know the uh, whatever they are the launch pads of the Apollo mission or whatever. Uh, okay, maybe. <laughs> I mean, it does look the same, but really, yeah. <laughs> you know? there's, there's the famous old quote. You know, McNamara resurrects it in Fog of War, which is. And I'm paraphrasing that if you can't get the majority of your peers to see your your line of thinking, mm. you should reevaluate your thinking. Yeah, that's a good. That's a that's and, an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm not flying in the face of Einstein or Galileo. I'm not saying that. You know what I mean? I'm not saying yeah. that to think an original. I'm saying that if you're if you're analyzing a film and you're about the only person that really sees it this way, the odds are that you know, however which way you're looking at it, if you can't get peers or even a majority of people to see what you're saying you might want to re-examine and, and when I look yeah. at these films, when I look at the analysis I mean this film, the, Room 237 is an exercise in polysemy it's the idea that you know we all react differently to text that the sort of like monolithic classic old you know um, hypodermic needle media effects theories of the mm-hmm. 20s and 30s are, are indeed obsolete that we all bring our own cultural conditioning and our own upbringing and our own sense of self to how we react and interpret film or, you know, various iconography and culture. However, you know, whether it's a uh, television series or a newspaper article or a billboard or whatever, we just we react differently. And I think the film, you know, is pretty even handed as someone who's done a lot of research, uh, not a lot of research, but, you know, who's a big, an avid fan of the documentary mode of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I respected the director for really taking the sort of anti-Trekkies approach to this, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, uh, it did not really try to poke fun at these individuals. I mean, there's one, there's that one shot when... I don't know which one of the people is making a point that seems really incredulous, you know. And he, we cut back to Jack at the bar saying, you know, anything you say, you know, Lloyd, anything you say, you know, he's mm-hmm. a bartender. And that seemed to be about really the most obvi- obvious cut that I could see, you know, evidentiary cut. Where, oh, <laughs> I get it. You know, and... <laughs> And, and that was about it. I mean, the director could have had a lot more fun with this than he did. He treated them with respect, really, and let them tell their theories. Um, and, and kind of they, they hung themselves with their own rope. I'm, I'm not trying to offend the people in this film. And when I made the crack earlier about sanity, you know, I was, that was being sort of hyperbolic. But yeah. I'm, I would also say that I do not see what they're talking about. And I've probably had more formal training in analyzing films, and I'm probably more familiar with the films of Kubrick. And a lot of the things they say are patently false about Kubrick. You know, they mm. just don't know the man's work very well. Um, they should go back and reevaluate his cinema. 
I think the one guy who made the point about how he was a genius who was bored by the time he made Barry Lyndon <laughs> was right on the money. You know, yeah. I mean, he, was, he was accurate about that, you know. Yeah. But that's as far as the truth telling goes with all these things. These people have kernels of truth and what they're saying and then extrapolate it out to conclusions that I just can't buy or, or at all. At right. All, you know. Yeah, I agree. The the movies of his that come up the most in the film are Eyes Wide Shut and um and probably Full Metal Jacket, I think. You know, someone mentions Lolita, uh Barry Lyndon comes up a few times. Um, two thousand and one, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, two thousand one. Yeah, actually more than Full Metal Jacket, two thousand one comes up now that you mention it. Um and, you know, and there are definitely thematic similarities between two thousand one, Eyes Wide Shut and The Shining, no doubt. Right, and you could do a thematic analysis pretty easily, sure. but like you said, extrapolating beyond that gets gets really dicey. I found a um, a quote from the um, director of the film, and he says uh, he says my personal take on it is for one, I don't think it's nearly as visionary as any one of these folks have found. I just see it as sort of a story about juggling the responsibilities of your career and family, and as a cautionary tale of what may happen if you make the wrong choice. And even maybe looking at the ghosts as these figures that represent fortune or prestige or things that you might be chasing at the expense of paying proper attention to your family. That's a, that's the uh, um, Rodney Asher, the director of two, Room 237's uh, take on it. But that said, I, I agree with you that he's he's very even-handed, and, and I think he's more interested in figuring out, like having these people tell their stories to kind of document the fascination with this particular movie, but also to document these people's kind of obsessive love of a particular film. And I think it's it's very it's very even handed and, and and which makes it watchable uh if he were, were damning them um or lauding them i guess i i don't i don't think i would have responded as well because believe it or not i would still recommend this movie i think it's a fun watch in a way it's it's you know frustrating but you know yeah, it's kind I of around you know. the 60 minute mark i, <laughs> I it became strictly a, a, an exercise in watching it for our show i just couldn't you know i tried hard to yeah. to um take seriously what some of the people were saying, but I found like maybe 10% of the stuff that came out of their mouths might've had some validity in the other night. Yeah. It was just, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not, again, I'm not trying to offend. I just, you know, respectfully completely disagree. Yeah. Pretty much everything that comes out. It reminded me a lot. And you know, I brought this up, uh, um, this morning in anticipation of our, of our cause I wanted to read it, uh, in, in anticipation of our podcast. There's a great South park episode called mystery of the urinal deuce. Someone okay. Crap, crap in, in the <laughs> at, at the you know the elementary school rather than in the toilet, and Mr. Mackey gets really upset, <laughs> uh, and it becomes like a Hardy Boys episode. But oh, that's great. Point, Cartman, who's always trying to destroy Kyle, uh, does a um, a uh, a little mini lecture to the class, and ultimately makes Kyle responsible for 9/11. And I'm just going to read the dialogue here between of the first few seconds about how Cartman tries to, using all the spurious logic, make Kyle the person who was responsible for 9-11. And it starts with him, Cartman says, remember, I'm gonna, this is going to be hard to do, remember that there are in fact two towers. Two minus one is one. One, one <laughs> equals 11. Two minus one is one. And one and one make 11. And there are nine members on Silverstein boards of direction, that's nine, one, one, nine, eleven, and take two minus one plus nine, eleven, and you get twelve, which leads us all to the mastermind of the nine, eleven tax, 
Kyle. And then Kyle says, me? Cartman says, yes. 12 contains the numbers 1 and 2, just like the toilet yesterday where someone went number 2 instead of number 1. Add 1 and 2 and 9-11 and we get 9-14. Drop the 4 and it's 9-1. Exactly the score Kyle got on his spelling test 12 days after 9-11. Who had the most to gain from 9-11? Kyle. Who was nowhere to be found in the morning? So it's that time. Oh my gosh, that is hilarious. <laughs> it's just so funny. And, and as I was watching, you know, Room 237, I'm like, it's Cartman doing his 9-11 speech, you know? That is fantastic. Was it done in JFK style or, or no? That's... Yeah, uh, uh, without the great editing, but yeah. I mean, right. But yeah, it was yeah. Kind of a continuous shot of, of, uh, of um, Cartman. That is fantastic. Yeah, we'll have to link to that in the show notes at, at that's a rap show dot com. That's that's I I have not seen that episode. That is fantastic. Um, yeah, and and yeah, I'm interested in you know kind of interrogating the line you know between like what's valid criticism, what's not. I think we've done that already. But um, to me, a lot of the the uh, the I don't know the theories. Like I always. I tell students this, I tell a lot of people this, like it, it, you have to pass the so what test, right. you know, or the who cares test, I guess. But, you know, if you're going on about, oh, I see that there's this number and two times three times seven equals 42. And that's the number, you know, like, it, there's the so what, like who cares? So what, you know, like that, there, there, there comes a point where you're looking at coincidences and drawing connections between the coincidences, which is kind of the mode of analysis or mode of thinking of, of our age, of the internet age in a lot of ways. You know, people can make connections between anything. That's why we have, you know, these these uh, theories about, you know, 9-11 being an inside job or, you know, there's no way it could have collapsed like that or whatever. And then you can, by just linking disparate pieces of information and extrapolating, you can, you, you know, shed doubt on just about anything and try to prove just about anything. And, you know, for most of us, it's a bunch of bunk, right? Um, it is. And, and I guess that's the so what thing. It's like, or, or, or even the, like that, you know, when you're doing, like when, when I have students do like their film analysis papers, I always tell them, anytime you make a point or you try to make a point or anytime you look at something, ask yourself, so what? Like, why does the reader care about this? And if it's not evident, explain why or get rid of it you know because there has to be some kind of link to to you know some real like interpretation or analysis that actually you know would make sense and you could argue um and you know you know this room 237 most of it like you said is an example of people just really just obsessively you know going too far and i love what you said in the beginning about projection they're projecting their own um obsessions especially the apollo guy he was he's uh, seemed to be obsessed about the apollo mission and it, you know, and so therefore, this is all about the Apollo mission. You know, and uh, you, you stream. Well, yeah, but, I, yeah. well the um, it, it's sort of like a, it's also an exercise in like when something it just it is exhaustively researched, just does, doesn't necessarily mean that it's intellectually rigor at the same time. Right. Um, and 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 but the the thing that is kind of confusing about that is it wasn't one of them a professor though. That's the. Uh, um, and I, I think it was the the Holocaust studies. Okay. I, I can't remember, but I you might be. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, you might be right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. yeah which which kind of just I don't get. Um, yeah, and he's the one I found least convincing. <laughs> I just you know I just don't see that the, the the Holocaust connection apart from some very sort of loose, you know, where you can take a look at anything and make a connection type of thing, and um, 
yeah, I, I oh, you know, it's sort of like ultimately, yeah, your so what question leads to my ambivalence about their interpretations of the film. Um, you know, it's just because I just don't find it to be reasonable, reasonably argued. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's the problem here is that, um, and 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 I and kudos to the director for not, you know, I mean, in a couple of the reviews I read, I I saw that a couple that they thought the film was was sort of like, um, intentionally trying to uh, freak show these people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get that, you know. No, I, I didn't get that either. A lot of documentaries that fall along these lines. Yeah. And I think there are far more egregious. Uh, Acts of filmmaking out there that that do that uh, than than this. I thought this was I agree. Uh, like yeah. we talked about earlier, pretty even-handed. I think they they ultimately kind of like, um, and I, I hope I don't I don't know they might be too blind to see it, but I think ultimately the public think that their interpretations are um, just simply not reasonable. You know, I don't yeah. think a reasonable person is going to buy these analyses. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But on the other hand, I think um, people who consider themselves reasonable would also reject Zizek out of hand, saying that he's overreading or, you know, overanalyzing. I guess you could make a stronger argument for Zizek um, just in the sense that, I don't know how to say it, he he seems to have more public and intellectual capital. Mm Mm-hmm. Then you know, uh, and so if we put any faith in our institutions, then, and that's a big if. If we put any faith in our institutions, then perhaps what he's saying should have more resonance than yeah. what um, somebody you know without the credentials and or publications and or um, intersubjective um, sort of policing would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a bit, kind of an appeal to authority in a certain way, but I do. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I don't else to appeal to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not. Have authorities in the matter. Yeah, I'm not unsympathetic to it. I just, you know, I, I, it, 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 but, but, you know, there's, there's a certain like, well, we believe him because he's big. <laughs> he's part of the institution. Well, maybe the institution's the problem too. You know, just well, to play you know, devil's advocate. You know, you that that like they went. They, they did all this training. They went to, mm-hmm. you know, they did it at undergrad. They went to grad school. They went to med school. Ten years of this practice and stuff. And then every patient comes in, you know, with <laughs> piles of internet information saying, this is what I have. And so that yeah. sort of strips them of their power mm-hmm. uh, to what they, you know, invested all this money and time into. And so when you say that I'm kind of, it's an appeal to authority, I don't know who else to appeal to. There, yeah. Guess, you know? I think one of the differences too. I mean, I'm not I'm not unsympathetic to that appeal at all. But I mean, there are a lot of people in this country who will, you know, who are very anti-intellectual who say because he's part of the academy, he can't be trust. He can't be trusted because it's the liberal, you know, the liberal academy and all that stuff, right? And uh, so you, you know that it's it can go the opposite way. I think part of it though too, part of the power of Zizek, he's he's using a particular theoretical framework to look at a lot of different popular movies and and uh, other cultural phenomena whereas these people are looking at one movie obsessively to try to pull meaning out of it you know what i mean they're trying to make theories out of a movie he's using theories to elucidate and interpret movies this is true you know uh, you know zizek uses as his as his base you know the 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 philosophies of a lot of great thinkers 
you know, people that, that are, ex again, accepted from by authorities mm -hmm. to be great thinkers, um, regardless of what we may think about Freud or something like that. You know, it's mm -hmm. like he was one of the more radical personalities that changed the world, you know, or the way how we look at the world, I should say, uh, or Darwin or Marx or, you know, anybody really. And I don't get that sense from the interpretations in room 237. You know, that's, that's what yeah. I'm saying. It was like exhaustively researched without any actual <laughs> rigor. All right. Therefore, it, it's hard to just swallow any of this stuff. And I think, I think that's the general reaction that everybody had to the film who watched it. And that is why these guys really need to reexamine their thinking. But I don't yeah. think they will because they're too Oh, no. Fast. Of course. Yeah. Prince, they're right. And like, they just can't see why we wouldn't think so. Um, uh, I can't say that for everybody in the film. I mean, if one of them was in front of me right now, he'd say, no, I respect your point of view, you know, but this is definitely how I see it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you on, on all of that. I like your WebMD kind of analogy where, you know, you go on the internet and WebMD and all of a sudden you've got like 10 different diseases, you know, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all need to go into the doctor's office prepared. We should yeah. do our own research. Well, yeah, that's just good. Uh, it's just the problem is, is because we, we, you know, we're it's our it's our bodies. You know, yeah, we're not detached from them like the doctor is. Exactly. <laughs> we get obsessed and start immediately sort of like worst case scenarioing everything. Yeah. And um, but I mean, we should we should go in with some knowledge. I think it's just we take it too far. You know, and we sort yeah. of like we strip the, the, the physician of their authority, you know, by saying, you're wrong. I clearly have. This, you know? <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. So, yeah, I, I would, uh, I, I think these are examples. This is, these are two good. And this is why I wanted to put them together. Cause when I first brought the subject, you were like, I want to advise against looking at room 237. Oh, yeah, I, I was totally like, yeah, are you kidding I, me? We want to talk about room 237. Yeah. And you were like, it's a, I've heard bad things about it. Right. Yeah, I had watched <laughs> Like the first few minutes when the guy was talking about going to see The Shining in Leicester Square. Uh, and then when he's like Native Americans, I'm like, all right, I'm out of here. And yeah. then I haven't visited since. And then but when you said, but, you know, what a wonderful foil the two mm -hmm. will be uh, if we pair that with Zizek. And I'm like, ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you were, it was, it was funny because you were immediately on board. I was like, that's precisely why I want to talk about it. And you're yeah, like, oh yeah, no, okay, I, cool. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know, I thought, yeah, I, I was thinking something completely the opposite no, of what you were saying. It was and, great. And I'm like, oh, okay, as, as a compare and contrast, you can't do any better than this. Because the, the films are both about textual analysis. Right. Both of them. Uh, mm -hmm. One with a sort of like undisciplined approach, then the other with a ultra highly disciplined approach, and so right. be, you know. yeah. So I think they serve as great examples of of you know what you might we might consider. Well, you just said it. Yeah, I'm not going to elaborate on what you said. You said you said it perfectly actually. Um, and so I you know, I would invite listeners to um, you know defend 237 or attack Zizek um, in in the comments at that's a rap show dot com or um, or even better come up with other movies that you know of that do uh, interesting film analysis because I would I know there are others out there but I would love I would love to know about them and hear about them uh, so if anyone has other uh, films that do similar things let us know in the comments at that's a rap show dot com or um, if you want to defend 237 attack Zizek whatever uh, that's a rap show dot com hit us in the 
the comments. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well and all that at um, Rap Podcast. So yeah, we'd love to hear from you because um, we're certainly not the final the final voices on this topic, but you know we do have uh, pretty strong opinions about <laughs> about the whole thing. So mm-hmm. sure. yeah. And if you haven't seen the films, go watch them. They're they're instructive in certain. They're both instructive in certain ways, you yeah, know. And, and both sitting right there on Netflix for you. Well, Perfect's Guide to Cinema is not, but you know. Yeah, Perfect's Guide to Ideology is, and they're and they're both worth, uh, yeah, worth t- worth taking a look at. So I would I'd add that um, right after I finished watching Room Two Thirty Seven, immediately afterwards it said you might like this, and then mm-hmm. came an image for the film Cropsy which I had seen and read about before. And I'm like, it was like one o'clock and I thought, Oh, what the hell? I clicked, you know, it's like 90 minute movie, something like that. And clicked it and watched the whole thing last night. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. I stayed up to about three, three thirty watching Cropsy, um, which Any I good? really, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who is hearing this, um, yeah, just, it's just, it's a random recommendation for me because it came up right after, you know, you might also enjoy this movie and I did. So it's a documentary and I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw the, uh, I saw it on Netflix too. It says you might like, but it was time to go to bed, you know, but uh, <laughs> for me, uh, cool. Yeah, that's great. That's good. That's good. I'll, I'll check that out. Um, yeah, this is a good discussion. Uh, next week, hopefully, or next time, Chris will be back with us uh, for whatever it is that we're going to talk about. But in the meantime, I'm Eric Marshall. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And you've just listened to episode number 24 of That's a Wrap. Thanks for listening. Cut. That's a wrap. <laughs>